You are listening to a Himal South Asian podcast. The Easter Sunday attacks in Sri Lanka, which killed over 250 people, have shocked the country and left people fearful and uncertain. While some details about the conspiracy behind the coordinated bombings of churches and hotels have come out, much remains unclear. Political infighting within the government has added to the lack of credible information, compromising the general public's ability to arrive at a clear understanding of the situation. Several instances of anti-Muslim violence this week has also led to fears of a communal conflagration. Himal South Asian's editor, Anuhita Mojungdar, spoke with Jayadeva Uyangoda, a Colombo-based political scientist, columnist, and the Emeritus Professor of Political Science at the University of Colombo, to make sense of the difficult situation. Professor Jayadeva Uyangoda, thank you so much for joining us here in Colombo for the Himal South Asian podcast. Uh, we would really like to understand the situation in Sri Lanka in this conversation with you. Uh, the bombings of April 21 have stunned the country, apparently coming out of nowhere. In fact, uh, this week uh, marks 10 years since the end of the conflict and Sri Lankans appear to have become used to the absence of overt violence. Uh, did the coordinated attacks of Easter Sunday come as a shock to most people? Uh, yes, uh, as you very correctly uh, pointed out, uh, since 2009, Sri Lanka has been having, uh, in a sense, uh, a sort of peace in the absence of violence and war. And people have also gotten used to that you know, condition of relative peace. And this was an absolutely shocking uh, incident. It was a huge tragedy as well. It is really hard to understand the attacks. I mean, terrorism has uh, no justification whatsoever, but uh, violence of this nature is usually related to some uh, specific goal. Uh, these attacks seem to be untethered to any kind of logic. Well, I think there is a logic in it. Uh, the logic is uh, the kind of uh, religion based politics of resistance to Christianity and to the dominance of the world by the US and the Western powers. So what has happened in Sri Lanka on the 21st of April can also be seen as a part of that global war uh, between the US-led Western uh, political order and the militant Islamic groups in the Middle East who have been operating in the Middle East, in parts of Asia, in some parts of Africa and Europe. So, you know, I am afraid uh, this event is not an isolated event. Um, this can be seen as a part of the global war. Uh, one of the most disturbing Readings of what happened on the 21st of April is that this group of suicide bombers have linked Sri Lanka to the global war uh, that has been taking place in the past decade or so. The ISIS was very slow to 
claim responsibility for the attacks and uh, information on the links, uh, the networks has been slow to emerge. Uh, I think some people are confused about the veracity of the information in the public domain. Uh, are you satisfied that there is enough information to say that uh, this was uh, carried out by ISIS or as some people are suggesting maybe inspired by ISIS without uh, evidence of direct uh, operational linkages? My understanding is that uh, there is no direct involvement of the ISIS in this operation. But in the nature of the ISIS, if you look at how they have been operating globally for the past several years, they, are, they have a highly decentralized you know, cells that operate across continents, whether it is in uh, Indonesia, whether it is in Sri Lanka, in some of the African countries, or some of the you know European capitals. Uh, these groups have a great deal of autonomy. They make their own operational decisions, but at the same time, they are ideologically, in some way, organizationally also linked to the global movement, which we call ISIS. So. In a way, they are inspired by the ISIS ideology as well as the global political project. But what is really intriguing in this operation is that according to the news that uh, we have so far got, the, all the leaders or non-leaders of the local movement, that's called National Tawhi Jamaat, is the first time I have heard of a militant group or terrorist group whose leaders themselves died in carrying out the operation. So what does it mean? It means perhaps that the guys who carried out this attack, these attacks and perished are probably not the real leaders of this uh, whatever the movement that is behind uh, this series of bombs. Probably they are handlers either in Sri Lanka or not in Sri Lanka. So that is why this particular incident should not be treated as an isolated incident. So a lot more information needs to emerge of course exactly. before we have full understanding of the situation. I think one thing which a lot of people have remarked on also is the fact that uh, some of the suicide bombers came from the absolute upper echelons of Sri Lankan society, uh, while of course religious uh, terrorism uh, does not uh, preclude people from all classes of society being involved. Uh, as you said, normally the people who carry out the bombings usually come from a lower strata and uh, that I think has puzzled people about why pe the rich and elite uh, families of in Sri Lanka, at least one family would have been involved. I don't think these young militant men come from the upper echelons of Sri Lankan society, no. <laughs> well, the father of one, two or three of these boys is a rich businessman, but still in the social structure in Sri Lanka, he is not from the upper echelons. That's important to remember. Mm -hmm. But what is common to all of them is that they are upper middle class, urban, you know, young men who have 
got western education as well some of them have gone abroad for their higher studies and all of them are educated people and for the past several years now according to the information we are getting now this number of these groups have been active in sri lanka but this particular group called national uh, tauhid jamaat uh, is a breakaway group from a larger group which has been advocating a particular militant interpretation of islam what is different about that group and this particular group is that although the, the, the larger group had advocated like the old left in south asia you know arm struggle this is the group that had actually carried it out so that is why probably this particular group has uh, only a very small number of members but uh, my feeling is that this group is connected to a larger global network i think people here are obviously worried about the fact that it's not yet over and as you're saying with the larger network there is the possibility of more attacks but one of the really disturbing things following the attacks has been the response we have seen from the government and especially in the immediate aftermath of these attacks there seem to be a lot of finger pointing between different towns of the government well the political leaders probably did not expect uh, this attack despite the warnings given to the intelligence agencies by the indian intelligence they perhaps thought that it would be uh, in a few bomb explosions like in 1983 1983 also you know what happened in 1983 i think there are a lot of parallels the government leaders at that time did not expect that to go out of control so perhaps security agencies also thought that it would be uh, merely an incident in which there would be few bomb explosions so that surprised everybody the political leaders immediately reacted by blaming each other we also have in sri lanka a deeply divided government there are two competing centers of political power president leading one camp and the prime minister and his cabinet leading the other camp so the immediate reaction uh, by both camps of the government is to blame each other the so one side would say that you know you knew about it you didn't inform us the other side would say that you knew about it but you didn't take action so that kind of you know apportioning the blame for the first reaction by the political leadership and then of course they realized that there was a lot of public negative reaction to that you know that immediately created a situation where the public confidence immediately you know people lost the confidence in the political leadership then of course they had to declare a state of emergency and to, and to bring the situation under some degree of control but what is really disturbing now is that this has led to the spread of what one may call islamophobia you know there's a deep mistrust between the communities particularly the muslim community is being treated as an immediate source of threat to even personal security of other citizens so there have been lot of news reports about discoveries of weapons, swords, guns, ammunition. So there's also exaggerated media reports. 
uh, and also quite a lot of uh, misinterpretations of uh, what has been happening. So that has led to a situation where uh, attention uh, has risen in number of areas where Muslim people live in small pockets. That's why the government has been declaring sometimes night curfew, full day curfews to contain violence. So Sri Lanka in a way once again on the brink actually. You see there's a great deal of tension, inter-community tension in the country now. So therefore the government, religious leaders and the media and the civil society all have a tremendous responsibility to prevent Sri Lanka from falling into the abyss of ethnic violence once again. Why do you think there has been such a reaction against the Muslim community in general? Uh, after all, the suicide bombers are a very small number of people who happen to be Muslim. But do you feel there was latent Islamophobia in the society and this has tapped into that? Or do you feel the attacks are being organized at some level for political dividends? You see that for the past several years, particularly after the war between Sri Lankan state and the LTD ended, there was a kind of emergence of anti-Muslim politics in Sinhalese Buddhist society. There were a number of Buddhist groups, Sinhalese Buddhist nationalist groups, I would call neo-Buddhist nationalist groups, who were looking at Muslims as the new source of threat, the new enemy. Actually, at that time, some of us, even by myself, had commented that, you know, some of the Sinhalese nationalist groups had begun to invent an enemy, new enemy, in the absence of the old enemy, Tamil Tigers. So, uh, there was uh, actually, there was a series of anti-Muslim violence unleashed by these groups in, nine, in 2013, 2014, and uh, as recently as 2018. So, the, the newly emerged extreme single and nationalist groups were actually targeting Muslims in their propaganda. So there was already a kind of, you know, anti-Muslim wave in Sinhalese society, which had been brought under control by the government to some extent. One of the leaders of that movement, a Buddhist monk who is in jail, you know, jailing him has in a way led to some kind of a containing that group. You are talking about the militant group, the Bodhubala Sena. Exactly, Bodhubala Sena. Now what has happened after the 421? that people have begun to say that what that monk predicted and warned about has actually come true. Now they say that what happened on the 421 has really exonerated <laughs> that monk. So there's once again, you know, the, the revival of similar uh, nationalist suspicion, mistrust and now animosity against the Muslim community. It's quite puzzling that the Catholic community, who are ethnically Sinhalese, but who are the target of these attacks on the 21st of April, have not reacted to the Muslim community in any violent way. I think one of the reasons is that the Catholic Cardinal managed to contain the emotions of the Catholic community. But in the Buddhist community, single Buddhist community, the majority of the 
Sri Lankan population, there is no such attempt by a major leader of the community to pacify the political emotions of uh, the Sinhalese citizens. So therefore, there has been a kind of subterranean wave of Islamophobia. And what we can see now is that various interested groups are exploiting and making use of politically the subterranean, you know, uh, Islamophobic consciousness. So that is what is emerging as a new source of threat to political stability and inter-community relations in Sri Lanka today. Well, I think the Catholic religious leadership has shown exemplary uh, leadership qualities in this situation, which is not true of other sections of society. Uh, but to go back to what you were saying about uh, Muslims emerging as the new other, as our contributory Sarani Gunasigra wrote uh, for us uh, more than a year ago, actually. Uh, you mentioned 1983 and the parallels uh, to the current situation. In 1983, as we all know here, led to anti-Tamil violence on a fairly serious scale. Uh, could you talk a little bit more and explain the parallels that you are seeing? You see, 1983, or before 1983, during the years, few years before 1983, there was a Tamil nationalist movement led by a mainstream, by the mainstream Tamil political parties who were engaged in parliamentary politics, asking for a separate state for Sri Lankan Tamils. So there's a movement for what they call national self-determination for the Sri Lankan Tamils. So they were demanding a separate state in Sri Lanka's northern and eastern provinces. So that created um, a, a kind of a rupture in the relationship between uh, the Sinhalese <laughs> political class and the Tamil political class. And although uh, the, uh, the mainstream Tamil political parties promised a separate state for the Tamil people, they were not actually serious about it. They thought that that was merely a slogan on which they could bargain for regional autonomy for the Tamils in the northern and eastern provinces. And that in a way led to a very unusual situation where the young people who were in the Tamil nationalist movement began to organize themselves for a you know, civil war, to for an armed struggle. So there was a small group of Tamil militants at that time, you know, starting from 1979, who were launching you know, minor military operations like attacking policemen, you know, robbing banks. So, and the government immediately reacted to that, uh, weaving it as basically a law and order situation and ignoring Tamil demand for regional autonomy. And then there were, you know, minor clashes between the Sri Lankan army that was deployed in the northern province and these Tamil militant youth groups. Then in July 1983, 13 Sri Lankan soldiers who were stationed in Vietnam were ambushed by Tamil tigers and they were killed. And their bodies were brought to Colombo for funeral on that day 
there were organized Sinhalese groups and some groups were linked to the government at that time started attacking Tamil civilians and that government told that you know okay this one Tamils deserve let the Sinhalese groups attack Tamils as long as it could be contained but what happened within few days it appeared that this would be this was an island wide campaign of violence against Tamil civilians then as a result we had this you know July 1903 ethnic riots in Sri Lanka which changed the political landscape in Sri Lanka and that pushed Sri Lanka to a point of no return in terms of relationship between the Sri Lankan state and the Tamil community and the Sinhalese community and the Tamil community and that was the prelude to actually the beginning of the protracted civil war in Sri Lanka. Uh, so the parallel to that in 2019 is that this Islamophobic reaction, if it is not contained, if the emergency regulations being used by the government and deployment of armed forces to contain this, this uh, new insurgency, if it is not controlled within the framework of rule of law and democracy, it might go out of hand. You see, there are always there's a possibility of police and military excesses in arrests and detention and these things. You know, under any situation of emergency rule, you know, you can, you know that these things happen in any country. In Sri Lanka, we have had a long experience of, you know, counter-insurgency operation under state of emergency or under prevention of terrorism. And those have always led to excesses and leading to alienation, continuing alienation between the state and these ethnic communities. Now, what is really dangerous now is that if this current counterinsurgency operation is not politically managed wisely and prudently by the government, it will lead to alienation, a state of alienation between the Sri Lankan state and the Muslim community. And it can even re-radicalize the Muslim youth. And that is the kind of parallel, very dangerous parallel I see between 1983 and 2019. It's almost a month uh, since the bombings. Uh, what is your assessment of the counter-terrorism operations carried out by the government? Does it show an enlightened leadership or do you think there is already stereotyping of the entire Muslim community? which is also adding fuel to the fire in terms of Islamophobia. But we have a divided leadership. <laughs> I'm not sure whether it's an enlightened leadership. But let me respond. Mona, could you briefly explain the division? Because it's not familiar to all of our listeners in other parts of South Asia. Because Sri Lanka has a particular form of uh, divided uh, political authority. Um, so, could you explain the relationship between the presidency and the prime ministerial office? In Sri Lanka, we have an extremely unusual and bizarre to a foreign observer situation in the government. So, this government, the present government, came into power in January 2015 by dislodging, by electoral means, uh, the government of President Mahinda Narapaksha. And this government is a coalition. The president was elected 
in January 2015, and the president until October 2014 was uh, deputy leader of uh, Mr. Mahindra Rajapaksha's government. So he had some problems with Mr. Rajapaksha. So he came to join the opposition, and he became the joint opposition candidate at the, in the January presidential elections in 2015. So when he became the president, in a few months later, there were parliamentary elections. The new coalition got the parliamentary majority, and Mr. Ranil Wickremesinghe, who was the leader of the uh, UNP, who would have been otherwise the presidential election candidate in January 2015, became the prime minister. So they worked together till about 2017, but there were some deep differences emerged between the president's side. And the prime ministers are due to issues of corruption, due to serious policy differences. Then, in 2018, October 26, 2018, President Sirisena all of a sudden sacked Prime Minister Victor Masinga and appointed his erstwhile political opponent, Mr. Mahindra Rajapaksa, as the prime minister. So then, there's a huge crisis in Sri Lanka: political crisis, crisis of government, the constitution crisis, and some of us describe it as a constitution coup. And of course, uh, you know, there was 52 days of government led by President uh, uh, Sirisena and Prime Minister, new Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksha. Then there was a Supreme Court determination on the 20th of December 2018, making that change of government unconstitutional and illegal. So Mr. Ranil Vikram Singh's government was restored on the 20th of December last year. But even after the new government, the old Prime Minister and his cabinet were restored, the relationship between the President and the Prime Minister uh, were not normalized. Actually, the President continued to act as if he was in the opposition. So the relationship between the president and the prime minister, or head of the executive and head of the cabinet and parliament, totally polarized. They were actually behaving as if they are political adversaries. Even now they behave as if they are political adversaries. So and that, there is a division of executive authority. That's right. Which uh, also complicates the situation. Right. And the security apparatus falls under the president's uh, authority. Uh, yes, president uh, uh, has a lot of powers and authority, even under the 19th Amendment, which changed the presidential system of government in Sri Lanka. What the president did after the 20th of uh, December, when uh, the old government had to be restored, that he was very reluctant to appoint Mr. Ranil Wickremesinghe as the prime minister, but because of the pressure, because Ranil Wickremesinghe had the parliamentary majority, he was. Forced to appoint him as the prime minister, but he kept a uh, number of key positions uh, actually outside the constitution. Uh, he was uh, continued to be the commanding chief of armed forces. He retained under him minister of defence and also minister of law and order. Usually, ministry of law and order should go to a minister other than the president. But the president kept it under him. So uh, when this happened on the twenty-first of April, all the security, defence, and law and order apparatus under the president. That is why the uh, why the, the prime minister's side has been accusing that the president actually did not perform his 
constitutional duty by protecting the citizens on the 21st of April. That's their accusation. And the political dissensions between the presidency and the prime minister's office is also leading to a situation where law and order is not being restored as promptly and effectively as it should be. Yeah, what has happened on the 21st of April is a, is a case study of paralyzed governance actually. Now, there were reports that the Indian intelligence had informed their Sri Lankan counterparts as early as the 4th of April that there would be attacks on the churches, the Indian High Commission and public places. And these intelligence warnings had been repeated by them a number of times. The president claims that his Secretary of Defense, the police chief, the IGP, had not informed him personally. And the Prime Minister claims that the President had not informed him about these threats. Cabinet Ministers also claim that they have not been officially informed about any of these warnings. Now, what appears to us is that there has been a paralysis of the executive government in Sri Lanka under the President. So there is a structural and institutional paralysis. So that is a direct outcome of this power struggle between the president and the prime minister. Do you expect to see new political realignments emerging because of this or exploitation of the current situation leading to political repercussions? It is very difficult to say how the situation would impact on the realignment of political forces. Actually for the past four months, President Sirisena has been negotiating with the Rajapaksha camp for a political coalition so that he would become the candidate at the next presidential election which should be held before the end of this year. Now it seems that those negotiations have collapsed. So it is not likely that President Sirisena can emerge as a presidential candidate of a new coalition between his party, that the Sri Lanka Freedom Party, and Mr. Mahindraja Paksha's camp. Now, Mr. Mahindraja Paksha's camp now think that they can easily win the presidential election without the support of Mr. Maitri Pala Sirisena, who is the president. There is a reason for their uh, very optimistic reading of the outcome of the next presidential election. For the past several months, there has been a sustained political campaign in Sri Lanka by Mr. Mahindraja Paksha's brother, Mr. Gotabaya Rajapaksha, who was former Defence Secretary, that Sri Lanka needs a strong ruler and a strong government. Now, Mr. Gotabaya Rajapaksha has been presenting himself as the candidate most needed by a politically unstable Sri Lanka. It has to reintroduce political stability, reintroduce law and order. A man like him, a strong man as the ruler and a strong government headed by him. Now once again, as a result of this, these events after the uh, 21st of April, the clamor for and the argument for a strong ruler has got a new legitimacy. So I have a feeling it will be very, very difficult for the UNP 
led by Mr. Vikramasinghe, the Prime Minister at the moment, to win the presidential election unless there is uh, there is a new candidate from the ULP who can be a match to Mr. Gotabaya Rajapaksha, who will be backed by even the section of the military as well. So Sri Lanka's you know political equilibrium has been drastically altered by this event and its outcome would be at one level a setback to uh, prospects for democracy in Sri Lanka. Of course for our listeners we must point out that currently uh, the law prevents Mr. Gotabaya Rajapaksa from contesting since he has a American citizenship but uh, we understand that he is trying to relinquish that citizenship and that may or may not be resolved by the time the presidential elections take place. Uh, but yeah, this reference to the strong leader, clamor for a strong leader, of course in the context of the region we are in, this uh, strong leader means an authoritarian leadership, does it not? Exactly. Uh an authoritarian leader initially elected by the people <laughs> at free FBI election. Uh, no, uh, Mr. Gotabiraja Paksha's case, as you have correctly pointed out, uh, there is an uncertainty about his candidacy because he is a dual citizen. He is a Sri Lankan citizen as well as an American citizen. But, but last month or early this month, or the last month I think, he submitted his application for relinquishing his American citizenship. To what extent uh, Americans will expedite that process, we don't know. But what is nevertheless clear is that Americans are also quite seem to be quite interested in securing their own interests, political, economic, and strategic interests, in case the Rajapakshas are back in power. Would you like to elaborate on that? Well, Americans need to protect their interests because Sri Lanka once again is caught up in this global power struggle between the US on one side, India on the other hand, China on the other hand. There are three powers who are trying to influence the political trajectories of Sri Lanka after the presidential and parliamentary elections this year. So there's a great deal of Chinese interest in Sri Lankan politics. There's a great deal of Indian interest in Sri Lankan politics. There is a great deal of American interest in Sri Lankan politics. So my own feeling is that Sri Lankan voters would not be the sole agency that determines the outcome of the presidential election this year. US, India and China will invariably have a role to play in determining who is going to be the next president for Sri Lanka. That's disturbing and a very fascinating aspect for which I think we must have you back here again for an entire new podcast. But to uh, bring this particular uh, interview to a close, I'd like to go beyond Sri Lanka to South Asia and the region. The tendencies of authoritarianism, ultranationalism and majoritarianism are gaining ground in large parts of uh, South Asia. Is it useful to analyze what's happening here in Sri Lanka in terms of the larger regional trends and perhaps even global trends? Well, the Maldives is still the exception, at least, you know. Has just, yeah, just yeah, emerged from that 
you know the authoritarian trap but india pakistan sri lanka bangladesh and nepal as still you know uh, i think there's possibility of some positive change in nepal and i think we all should look at maldives as a <laughs> hope for south asia because there was restoration of democracy by peaceful means against the ruler who manipulated all the state institution including the judiciary for his personal power now the maldivian opposition and the people managed to dislodge such an authoritarian and highly determined authoritarian ruler to dislodge him from power and restore democracy but on india uh, see what i see is uh, indian elections or rather election process very clearly indicate that the strategy of ethnic polarization that the bjp has been using for the past x number of years has been once again deployed to win this election it be quite difficult for opposition for a divided opposition like the indian opposition we have today to challenge mr modi and the bjp and it would be miracle if mr modi is dislodged from power on the day when the election results are out and of course india does have a influence over the region entire you see the the question of india now i must say this because this is a south asian listeners would be listening to this until about 10 years ago india under nehru and even the gandhi family congress with all the setbacks all the corruption abuse of power india constituted and continued to be model for us in south asia is you know democracy is uh, secularism and kind of you know the neruvian gandhian legacy of social democracy now we do not consider or we cannot consider any longer india to be our model and that's the real you know setback we have civilized civilizational setback we have in south asia that is why the electoral outcome this year in india would largely define political trajectories in other countries as well in south asia well that's again another fascinating issue for which we must have you back but we should bring this interview to a close and as you said uh, i think we all need to take our inspiration from the extremely courageous uh, citizenry of maldives who really shown all of us a way in how to show up to stand up to power and authoritarianism in the region thank you so much for being with us it's been a real privilege to have you here to explain the situation in sri lanka to our listeners thank you professor jayadevi and goda thank you amita for having me for more himal podcasts go to himalmag.com/podcasts